welcome, I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the Ethical Business Building the Future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're discovering more about the evolution of business organizations. Historically rooted in and connected to their communities, they have gradually lost touch and trust. But many of today's business leaders are once again seeing the value of their communities and customer base. Wendy Moman will give us a practical example of how one business seized an opportunity in the midst of a crisis to gain the trust of its employees and other stakeholders. We'll hear about designing business systems that encourage our humanity. But first, Dorothy Marsick is a professor at Columbia University, an author and award-winning playwright. She says the iconic corporation we know today is a recent phenomenon and that the dominant force behind organizational development used to be places of worship. We live in a time when commerce has become a dominant force in life. This was not true in the Middle Ages. The church was the dominant force, and if you went into a town, the tallest structure was the church. Nowadays, when we go into a city, we see the skyline, which is usually business buildings and some apartment buildings. Uh, There are many companies that have larger budgets than nations. So business is a dominant force. If you look back to the time in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance when the church uh, was a dominant force in people's life, it was after the Enlightenment that it started to diminish, and especially in the last 100, 150 years. But people still need to believe in something. They need to cherish something. They need to hold something in high esteem. And as the church has fallen away and... Uh, We no longer trust a lot of institutions that we used to trust. I think that what we see is in the political world that people are putting faith and trust in humans that don't deserve it. And it's because there's nothing else for them to trust. And so I think our job is to help create institutions that people can trust again because we've lost that. And people did trust the institutions and they're was a lot of things going on behind the scenes that they didn't know about so that they're, they didn't know they shouldn't be trusting them. You know, we know a lot more now because of social media and because of just the flow of information. But there was trust, and that was necessary to build communities. You cannot build communities without trust. And so we're sort of drifting in society, and it's why a lot of our institutions are collapsing. But why... Should people trust in something new? Well, they shouldn't trust in it unless there's evidence that what the new institution is is actually going to, is worthy of trust. I remember I used to be a management consultant before I became a playwright, and I worked with an organization that was having a lot of problems. It was, it was a school. The principal of the school came to me and said, Dorothy, please get the parents and the students to trust us in administration because we're trying to get our act together. We're trying to do things right, but they need to trust us in the interim. And I said to her, they will not trust you until you become trustworthy. And that's what we have to do is create in 
to the extent that we can with our own agency, create organizations and institutions that are worthy of trust, and then people will give us trust. How do we do that on a mass level, though, on a, on a really big scale? How do we institutionalize this on a global scale? It will not happen unless the leaders at the top understand that this is important. Organization change, you, you cannot have a large organization go through real change unless the people at the top are in favor of it. it you know, this grassroots thing will lead to revolution, but it doesn't really, uh, it won't topple the, the leaders. But I've seen organizations where the leaders embrace this change and um, they get involved in a kind of change that involves everybody. And it happened years ago. General Electric is the largest company that I saw that actually was able to implement this. When Jack Welch was the CEO, he really believed in it. They had a whole system involved. And you see many organizations now that are some of the startups that have become large that are trying to do things on a in the right way, uh, Patagonia, and, and some other organizations, but it, it takes um, sort of enlightened leadership at the top, but it also takes the willingness to cede ultimate control, to be able to be a team member with everybody. And I think it's going to happen as organizations see that the productivity will be greater when everybody feels engaged. There's a lot of research that backs this up. And we're in a time now where it's slipped. I used to track this from the 80s and the 90s, and I could see every year that there were more and more organizations that were uh, becoming socially conscious and aware that um, treating employees well was important to the uh, future well-being of the company. And then somewhere around 2000, it started to slip. What happened? You know, I, I, I think we... Um, at least in the United States, the political climate changed and became one of more cowboy political management, and, and that seeped into some organizations. The regulations became less, and uh, we've kind of we're going back and forth till then. And I think we're we're in a place now where we're we're starting to see that um, you can only squeeze people at the bottom so much, and then. What happens is a lot of resentment and anger that comes out in other nasty ways, and we're going to have to face this. I think we've lived in a time where the balance sheet has become too preeminent. We went from a time where it was all about the sins you committed and confessing, and that was when the church was in preeminence, and those were a bottom-line thinking. And now we have a bottom-line thinking of what's our profit for this quarter, which doesn't look at the totality. I'll quote a friend and colleague of mine, Larry Miller, who says, if you only have one metric, you necessarily create injustice because it's not looking at the whole. So having one metric of profit doesn't take into account the sustain sustainability of the environment, the well-being of the people who, who work and the customers. And so... Um, triple-line accounting and, and more inclusive ways of looking at business are what is going to bring us to a better world.
What if you were in charge of a large manufacturing concern and a sudden event paralyzed your vital operations? The decisions you make during a crisis will alter your business forever. EBBF board member Wendy Moman explains. I think there are genuinely good people in the world and that they want to do the right things. They have these consciousness. There are many people who are not, but I'm talking about the people who are. And many of them are heads of you know, big corporations. Many of them run small businesses. And they try genuinely to be good players in the system. But if you look around the world, there are some wonderful CEOs who are putting into practice many of the ideals that I would sign up to um, and who are you know, ethical, who are concerned about the welfare of their workers, who are concerned, um, I won't mention any company names mm. in this context, but a car manufacturer in our country, in the UK, when there was a tsunami uh, in, the, in the Far East uh, and the factory there was unable to provide parts, really the car company was going to fold, as did so many others. But instead, had such a relationship with its workforce that it went to the workforce and, and said, we can either shut the factory and you'll all be out of a job, or we can, everybody, including myself as the CEO and my team, can take a cut to whatever percentage and we can keep the business going even though there's actually no work right now. We can continue to pay our suppliers because there will be a day soon when we'll be able to get these parts. And they voted for that and they kept their workforce together and people were happy to do that because it meant they could continue their jobs and they had some income coming in. And I thought that was a very interesting example. They're right back to where they were now. And they're back to where they were because they put in place the process mm. for them to become viable again, right? Yes. Instead of instead of just taking an axe and and cutting everything off. Well, the, yeah, and they didn't do that. They, they could have closed the factory and cut their losses and gone. In which case, you know, what they did is they kept the thing open. That meant they had to pay their overheads. They had all these people that were, you know, working there and families who were reliant on that and a supply chain behind them and people who sold sandwiches into the, you know, all those people because they had already built a good relationship with all of the stakeholders, not just the stockholders, you know, shareholders, not just the supply line, not just the people who've supplied the parts, not just the workforce, not just the community, but all of those, they'd built that, then there was a confidence that they would be honest and that they would fulfill their promise, and they did. And the people were loyal and stayed in the business, even though they took this cut in pay. And now, James Jennings tells us how we can integrate humanity into the operating system of a business. This piece is read for us by EBBF board member Ralph Blundell. What if we took what we know from behavioural science and built it into the infrastructure of our organisations? What if we envisioned an organisational operating system as a whole that successfully wove together goals and strategy with talent management and work systems with the intent of putting people and their humanity on a par with the output of profit. It is said that man is made in God's image. It is not the physical image that matters here, but the spiritual one. We are curious, compassionate, creative, bold, patient and loving. 
Imagine our humanity, our divine nature, being nurtured by our organisational operating systems. Take what behavioural science teaches us about people and performance and embed that in our organisational systems, especially our information systems. To manage my team better, because I'm not a naturally gifted leader, I built a scheduling app based on competencies and the social contract between the individuals in my team and me. In this system, important projects had asks, asking for competencies, and my team offered different levels of skill. It was not simply about scheduling based on competencies. The balance between ask and offer created an obligation for me as a manager. It told me to get out of the way of experts in their domain. It offered my team the opportunity to push their learning and develop their own judgment. When someone said, I've never done this before, but I'm eager to try, it reminded me to both allow their initiative and also to step in when someone was overwhelmed, with my leadership role being both directive and encouraging. That little app helped me recognise patterns in the asks and offers of competencies so that I could do the right thing by my team. I coached my people when they needed me and got out of their way when they didn't. That built trust improved communication and accelerated our learning. That app was the seed that grew into a vision to use technology to encourage our humanity and to repair the flaws of detachment that plague many for-profit and not-for-profit organisations around the world. Thinking systematically about organisational capability has led to supportive relationships between people, especially between managers and employees. I share with EBBF a belief and vision that our purpose as human beings is to be more conscious and connected, that our purpose can be manifested in our businesses and that business can be made systematically more prosperous, fair and sustainable. For joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.